Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Paul Ortiz, author of the book An African American and Latinx History of the United States. You can choose to live in concert and in amity or in friendship with your neighbor, or you can feel that every right your neighbor gets or enjoys comes at your cost. We'll discuss the 1887 book, Prehistoric Remains in Florida, by J. Francis LeBaron. Some of the maps that he produced are uh, really works of art today, and they're, they're highly sought after. And we'll talk about the work of Florida students in France as part of the Veterans Legacy Program. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Ortiz is director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and associate professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville. His latest book is An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. In the book, Paul Ortiz takes a more inclusive view, closely considering the roles of people who are often overlooked in traditional American history. How I wrote the book was essentially it comes out of the classroom, you know, my organizing experiences, being in the archives, and it's really my students that oppressed me over the years, both when I taught at UC Santa Cruz, but now at UF. I have a lot of Haitian-American students, a lot of Cuban-American students, and they often come to a U.S. history survey and they say, where are our people? You know, where are my ancestors in this national narrative? So I'm responding to changes more than actually probably making changes. The response to the book so far has really been remarkable. Um, I think, as you know, it, it's more about when you write a book than what is even in the book. And so now we live in a moment of backlash. There's a lot of uh, racism against you know Mexican people, Haitian people, African American people. Uh, and so a lot of people are looking for answers. You know, where does the racism come from? But also, you know, what have been the social movements to challenge you know inequality and oppression? And I think that's really where the book is trying to, to engage in. It's, it's kind of part and parcel of its own, you know, of the time period that I researched and wrote it. Ortiz approaches this new look at history from a very personal perspective, countering what he had been taught growing up and uninformed viewpoints that are still around. When I was a child growing up in California, but also in Washington State, there was next to nothing about Mexican history except insofar as we were either victims or losers. And so we spent a lot of time talking about the Mexican-American War. Wow, that's really inspiring if you're, if you're Mexican-American, right? You know, we spent a lot of time going to, I remember in California, going to missions 
And even as a fourth or fifth grader asking, well, where are all the people here there? And the response was, well, they just vanished. They just kind of disappeared. And so it was kind of a haunting education and the education that we received. And I was born in 1964. And unfortunately, I have to say that going across the country and talking to young people today, I mean, in many places in this country, that education hasn't changed much. The kind of the, the absence but also the sense that we're second-class citizens. You know, if you're a person of color, um, we haven't done enough to try to welcome people. And the other problem has been, and what I really try to address with this book, Ben, is the question of nationalism. Uh, White nationalism, if you will, but nationalism writ large. And so we can complain about that we have these resurgences of nationalism, But unless we as scholars do something about that and begin to change the frameworks in which we teach U.S. history, as long as we continue to to, to teach nationalism, we'll get nationalism. So that's really what the book is trying to break out of. In his book, An African-American and Latinx History of the United States, Paul Ortiz looks at Haiti as a focal point in the struggle for human rights. He says that Haiti's struggle impacted the United States and the world. It's the most important revolution in an age of revolutions. And I should say that that this book is built on primary research, but also a lot of secondary research. People like Julius Scott, who was one of my professors at Duke, wrote a magnificent dissertation called The Common Wind. And it was about the impact of the Haitian Revolution on the early U.S. Republic. For enslaved people in North America, almost every major slave revolt in the late 18th, early 19th century is inspired and in many ways keys on the Haitian Revolution for oppressed people trying to to defeat Spanish and Portuguese uh, uh, colonialism in Latin America. Almost every independence movement at, at a certain point ends up in Haiti looking for advice, looking for, for arms, you know, looking for ammunition. Uh, and even though Haiti is blockaded by France, Great Britain, and the United States, it's interesting when you think about this, because those are three nations normally at odds with each other, right? France, Britain, the United States. But one thing they can, can agree on, keep that blockade of Haiti, strangle them, because they know oppressed people all throughout the Americas see that, uh, that small island as a haven of liberty. And that's why Antonio Maceo goes there, Jose Marti goes there, Simon Bolivar goes there. And if you go to Central America now, and, and, and the other way the book is personal for me is I can recall as a soldier in Special Forces in the early 80s seeing um, homages to Haiti then, although back then I didn't understand it. I went, well, what does Haiti have to do with Colombia or Venezuela? But after doing research, it becomes obvious that the people of those regions understood clearly that so much of their liberty was based upon the Haitians first, you know, breaking the myth that European armies could not be defeated, but also throughout the long 19th century, you know, offering um, a a sanctuary, if you will, um, to people fighting colonialism in different contexts. In his previous book, Emancipation Betrayed, The Hidden History of Black Organizing and White Violence in Florida from Reconstruction to the Bloody Election of 1920, Ortiz argues that the contemporary civil rights movement actually begins much earlier than the 1950s. In his latest book, Ortiz says that the Reconstruction era following the Civil War should extend beyond the traditional ending date of 1877. What I've learned from reading people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction, not just reading that book, but rereading it. And I tell my graduate students today, 
you're not going to get black reconstruction by Du Bois the first time through. I talked to Connie Lester about this recently, right, the great historian from UCF, and Connie said the same thing. Connie said she has recently reread that book. Isn't that interesting how as we continue to grow as scholars and learn more, we realize how little we know? And what Du Bois taught me in rereading him was that Reconstruction was never again a, a single national event. Du Bois doesn't frame black Reconstruction like that. And so going back to it, it was in many ways researching the book, Ben, was very humbling because when I was a graduate student, even though I'd read Du Bois, even though he taught us an internationalist framework in Emancipation Betrayed, my book on Florida, I present Reconstruction primarily really as a national kind of event, okay? And rereading Du Bois taught me, no, it was never a national event. African Americans never thought of emancipation in one country. They were thinking of emancipation beyond U.S. borders. They were a very much a part of an international black proletariat. And again, it was reading people like Cedric Robinson or Du Bois or C.L.R. James, which kind of reminded me of that international dimension, which is the thing, again, we can either connect the U.S. to other nations uh, other movements, or we can build walls. And right now we're in a phase where our leaders want us to build walls. What I found in the researching of this book is people trying to build bridges. And so, you know, free people in Florida and Louisiana and South Carolina, in their conventions, which are organized to fight lynching, to argue for the right to vote, they very often have uh, pay equal attention to the conditions of slaves in Cuba or Brazil. They talk about, I talk in the book about how the, there's a concern among black communities all throughout the United States about serfdom in Russia uh, and the idea that unless, unless freedom expands, it's going to contract. So there's that very real sense of international thinking about these great ideas of democracy and liberty. Many people familiar with American history will be surprised by the results of this research. Ortiz says that people of color have been having a significant impact on U.S. history from the beginning. It just hasn't been very well documented. The research of this book, Ben, taught me that, yes, Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa have had just as great, if not greater, impact in the U.S. from the very beginning. Uh, one of the ways I'll talk about at the, this evening's Schaffner um, uh, lecture event is even the idea of citizenship. And so a lot of the people I talk about in, in African-American and Latinx history of the United States saw citizenship very broadly. They saw it beyond one border, which makes sense because they were a traveling people. If you think of uh, you know, Latino or Latinx history, African-American histories, we are predominantly working class people. We always have been, we always will. Um, as long as your listeners are, are alive, we'll be primarily a working class people who have to travel to make a living, to earn a living, to find a place, you know, if, if you will. And so that means that we have a much more internationalist conception of issues like work, like citizenship, like freedom. We don't necessarily see these things as tied to just one country. You know, I talk in the book a lot about the, the really intimate connections between the people of Mexico and the United States and how our leaders have had to go, uh, you know, work overtime to, to get us to forget those very intimate bonds and connections and the fact that for, you know, hundreds of years there really was no border between the two nations. Well, why, why are our leaders now talking about building a wall? You know, the wall is, is not for our benefit. 
the wall is for their benefit. They want to weaponize a place that people generally have gone along together pretty well, okay? They want to weaponize the war on drugs. They want to weaponize a border where people are primarily, you know, multilingual, you know, and they want to impose one language or the other on, on those people. Well, why is that? And so I use the book to really uh, reopen these discussions about, you know, uh, really about building those kinds of symbolic bridges that have, have been torn down in our own time. It's been estimated that within the next three decades, America will no longer be a majority white nation. Still, archaic policies from the 1800s continue to have an impact today. You can choose to live in concert and in amity or in friendship with your neighbor, or you can feel that every right your neighbor uh, gets or enjoys comes at your cost. And that's the decision that's facing us now. Do we want to live in a society where we believe that in terms of democracy and freedom and, and culture, the rising tide lifts all boats? Or do we want to like build the walls, do the disenfranchisement thing, um, and, and go that route? Now, we know what that route leads to, though. It's a grim road. You know, the, the culminating point is Jim Crow, fascism, uh, you know, uh, totalitarianism, one-party rule. Or we can go the democracy road. And that's the road that African Americans have, have really charted for us during that Reconstruction period. So that's where I think history becomes very, very useful. Paul Ortiz is director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and associate professor of history at the University of Florida. His latest book is An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, archaeologists are very active in Florida today. There's exciting work being done at Wakala Springs, Manasota Key, Pensacola, and off of Cape Canaveral, just to name a few. But that's nothing new. Archaeology has been going on in Florida for quite some time. Yeah, that's right, Ben. We can find evidence of that, at least in the historic record, going back into the early 19th century when we really had, I guess you could call the beginnings of a disciplined science of archaeology, which really didn't appear into the 20th century. But there were certainly uh, people who were coming to Florida, and they started to notice that there were some patterns, at least cultural patterns, that were apparent within the human record in Florida. So we were certainly aware that there were human beings in Florida for some time prior to European arrival. But the practice of archaeology, which is uh, studying essentially what they left behind, really didn't begin until the 19th century. In 1800s, 
1830s, 1840s, as Florida's population began to grow, as we started building roads, as we started making forays into the interior of the state, people started noticing these large earthen mounds. And that's really some of the only tangible evidence of these early civilizations that lived in Florida long before Europeans arrived some 500 years ago. We've even seen a Danish term for shell heap appear in a lot of the early documentation. Some were very large, 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70 feet tall. They became, especially the ones along the coast, they became uh, navigation markers for early sailors. In fact, there are records going back to the 16th and 17th century of Spanish and and French explorers who were traveling along the coast of Florida, uh, on the Gulf Coast, the Atlantic Coast, and they noticed some of these earthen mounds. And they would note that they were probably built by humans, but that was about it. It essentially stopped there. It wasn't, like you said, until the, the 19th century when we really started what we would term now as archaeology, the beginnings of a kind of a disciplined breakdown and analysis of the tangible remains of these early uh, human beings that lived in Florida. One of these early archaeology enthusiasts was J. Francis LeBaron, who was a cartographer better known for his map making than his archaeology, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. J. Francis LeBaron first came to Florida in the 1870s, and, and some of the maps that he produced are uh, really works of art today, and they're, they're highly sought after. He did a number of private surveys, but he was actually employed by the United States government doing coastal surveys, and he traveled throughout the entire state of Florida over the course of, of several decades, beginning in the 1870s. And this is at a time when a lot of people are moving to Florida after the end of the Civil War. There's a lot of infrastructure development, and he had a, a very key he and I, of course, not only for surveying and for map making, but he also started to notice a lot of these archaeological relics, basically. And, and he started mapping shell mounds throughout the state of Florida. He began up in Fernandina. In fact, he uh, starts out a publication that we're looking at here that was published in 1877 for the Smithsonian Institute. And he talks about stepping off the boat February 26th of 1877 and almost immediately running into one of these shell mounds. And he started kind of a, a basic excavation. And over the years, Years, he kind of refined his practice and, and started doing uh, more and more excavations. He sent a lot of these relics back to uh, the Smithsonian Institute, and he tried to record exactly where a lot of these mound sites were. What he also noticed, and, and what became a serious problem going into the late 19th and early 20th century, was the use of a lot of the uh, shell relics for road making. In fact, here on the, on the very second page, he's describing a mound that was uh, just north of Palatka on the St. John's River. And he says here, quote, it was a shell heap about 12 feet high, the eastern edge abraded by the waters of the river into a steep bluff. A large part of this shell heap had been carried away in boats to form walks and driveways in Palatka and for fertilizing purposes. This practice is very common throughout the state and is working the speedy destruction of these interesting remains, unquote. So even in the 1870s, he's noticing that contemporary humans, or at least contemporary to his time, are beginning to destroy evidence of these prehistoric humans that were living here many centuries and in some cases thousands of years before. And he goes through, this is actually a really fairly thorough statewide evaluation of all of these shell mounds as he discovered them while he's doing these coastal surveys and surveying through the interior. And some are fairly detailed. Now, again, the science of archaeology was really not in effect at this time period. So he's sort of just digging, recording what he saw, talking with other people who are interested in archaeology, but really only talking about maybe a few dozen people in the entire state that really have any interest outside of, as I just said, just digging through and, and using the material for roadbed. Now, archaeology has made a lot of technological advancements in recent years, but is this information still useful to them today? 
It absolutely is. In fact, often contemporary archaeologists have to dig into the historic record to try and piece together what happened, because as I explained, a lot of these mounds have been destroyed by contemporary development. So parking lots are on top of a lot of these shell mounds that exist now, or a shopping center, or homes, or interstates, and things like that. So in order to kind of reconstruct what existed only 150 years ago, which gives us kind of a view into what existed possibly thousands of years ago, it's very important to dig through some of the historic record, like the narrative that was written by J. Francis O'Baron all the way back in 1877. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see LeBaron's article, go to our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker, a public historian at the University of Central Florida, has been keeping us updated about the Veterans Legacy Program. She tells us that Florida students recently went to France as part of the project. The History Department at the University of Central Florida recently partnered with the Department of Veterans Affairs to bring veteran stories to life through the Veterans Legacy Program. UCF's first project with the Veterans Legacy Program took place at Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell, Florida where they uncovered the stories of veterans there. After their work at Florida National Cemetery, the Veterans Legacy Program team from UCF expanded and continued their efforts at St. Augustine National Cemetery in St. Augustine, Florida. They also traveled to France to work in two cemeteries, the Anne Marne American Cemetery and the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery. Dr. Amelia Lyons, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Programs in the UCF History Department and Principal Investigator for the Veterans Legacy Program, told me more about the Veterans Legacy Program's work documenting Florida veterans in the Anne Marne American Cemetery in France. The Veterans Legacy Program work was primarily at two cemeteries, the Anne Marne and the Meuse-Argonne. And so the Anne Marne Cemetery uh, is well known uh, because of a handful of American battles that took place nearby. Chateau Thierry was the very first place that American soldiers and Marines saw major combat operations. And the wood that's right behind the Enmarne Cemetery is Bella Wood. And Bella Wood is a place of history and mythologizing. And in some ways, it's the place where what we think of as the modern Marine Corps was founded. It's the battle where over a thousand Marines died on June the 6th, 1918. It remains the deadliest day in Marine Corps history. It is the place where Marines get their nickname Devil Dogs, as the Germans reportedly called them Devil Dogs for the tenacity of the fighting in that wood. And so when we went, not only did we do our work in the cemetery, taking GPS coordinates and photographing the headstones of Floridians we were working on, including two Marines from Florida, I had a Marine with me. One of our graduate students, Jim Stoddard, served for 10 years in the Marine Corps. And it was quite moving to be at a place that all Marines are supposed to go to at some point in their life and to be able to go with a student and to be in those wheat fields and to be in that wood and to be at that cemetery with him. In addition to the work that we did, this was quite a moving personal experience. Dr. Lyons also told me about the Veterans Legacy Program's efforts at the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery in France. 
The other cemetery that we went to, as well as the monument to the Musaragan, which is the Mofoucon uh, monument, which is the hill at which a big portion of the battle took place, was incredibly important for a whole range of reasons. Not only did we do the work of recording the GPS coordinates and photographing the headstones of Floridians who will be available on our website and our app, those that the students wrote biographies of, but I think to be there at the 100th anniversary of the Musaragan was quite a moving experience. The Musaragan is the largest land battle in American history. It's the bloodiest battle in American history, and most Americans don't know its name. On the very first day of the Musaragan, more shells were fired than in the entire Civil War. That's something I think that we don't think about very often. 1.2 million Americans fought in the Musaragan, 26,000 gave their lives, another 95,000 were injured. So the Musaragon, for us, for the members of the VLP team, there is a way in which, you know, we want to make sure that that story gets told, that the story of 1.2 million Americans fighting in France between September 26th and November 11th, 1918, is a story that is incredibly important. I will also say, I think, that it's important to recognize that the Musaragon is actually the largest American cemetery in Europe. We think always of Normandy and D-Day and the Omaha Beach landings and the cemetery there, but the Musaragon is by far the largest American cemetery in Europe. It has 130 acres, and over 14,000 Americans are buried or memorialized there. Because in addition to those who are buried there, there are tablets of the missing. Uh, It was a brutal war and many folks were never found, and French farmers occasionally still find remains. 42,000 Floridians served in World War I, and more than 1,200 Floridians died in service during the war. The Veterans Legacy Program team from UCF wrote biographies for 15 of the Florida veterans in the Anne Marne American Cemetery and the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery. For Dr. Lyons, one of the most rewarding parts of working with the Veterans Legacy Program has been the enthusiasm of the students. I love working with students, and I love being able to have innovative assignments and for students to write a paper that doesn't just sit in a drawer that gets published, that becomes part of K-12 curriculum, that has these afterlives that they are proud of that they know they're making a difference and they're making a real contribution to their community, that makes me just kind of brim with joy and pride about being associated with this program. It's the students and the kind of joy the students get out of it, the kind of commitment students have to this program and to the veteran that they work with. I remember once looking at a document that listed Florida World War I dead, and it had a lot of names on it, and we were talking about one veteran in particular. But the students in my class noticed the names of the veterans they were working with. And, you know, they didn't shout out, that's my veteran. In unison, at least four or five students shouted, that's me. They had such a personal connection to the person they were working on that they felt this first-person relationship. And they go on, and so many of the students work on this past the class. I had a student this semester who had replica World War I dog tags made for his veteran. They really commit to the person in a way that you don't see with your average assignment. To learn more about the Veterans Legacy Program and to read the biographies of veterans from Florida National Cemetery, St. Augustine National Cemetery, the Anne Marne American Cemetery, 
and the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery, please visit www.vlp.cah.ucf.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.